Thank you, guys. Let's open up to the book of 1 John in uh, chapter 3, verses 18 through 24. Um, I'm glad you're here, and uh, we're going to continue and just pick up. Um, I heard after last week there were some good darties that took place uh, after the service. That's awesome. I know uh, we're headed towards that direction today and uh, being Super Bowl Sunday. Um, a friend of mine, pastors in a college town years ago, um, in a really big college town, they're, they're football crazies, and uh, he sort of got frustrated with his church and the enthusiasm that the church was displaying towards football. And so he did the whole like preacher thing where he was like, hey, I really wish we could be as excited about church as we are about football. And he sort of said it rhetorically, metaphorically, whatever. And then the next week, he had some of his college kids that were fanatics about football that took him literal. And so they showed up with letters shaved on their chest, <laughs> raising their shirt as the pastor got up to preach. And so um, I'm not going to do that to you, okay? And, uh, but, I, but I do think it's an appropriate analogy this morning and sort of getting the ball rolling because it is Super Bowl Sunday, and whether it be football or basketball or whatever it is that you're most excited about, we often tend to display our emotions about sports in a way that often we, we don't actually do when it comes to the Lord. And, and maybe it's an appropriateness of venue. Uh, maybe we're, we're fearful of the pastor or the neighbor sitting next to us or, or just the, the normal decorum that exists there. But when we watch sports, and what some of us will see this afternoon as we watch the Super Bowl, you'll see all the guys that, that show up and they're tailgating and they're dressed up, they're painted, they're, they're spending untold amounts of, of money to go and to attend and to watch. Jerry Jones shows up like the ultimate flex move with his big yacht in Miami, like bragging you know, about who he is and what he's got. Like it's, it's a pretty incredible thing. But when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to the Lord, oftentimes I think in our haste to, to get the right doctrine right and to get the right truth right, we tend to minimize the role of the heart and the desire and the affections and the emotions that need to be in play when we talk about the Lord and when we live a life according to the Lord. There's one extreme of this where we can become overly emotional in our responses to the Lord. And then the other extreme is, is that we can just simply dismiss all emotions and, and sort of make it void of, of humanity in every which way and just talk about truth as if truth doesn't necessarily inform our emotions. So there's this moment in 1 John where the people of God were struggling with their emotions. They were struggling with more specifically their desire or their lack of desire or their feeling in their closeness to God. Like you've been in those moments in your own life where you're like, man, I, I don't feel, I know God is real, I know he's there, and I maybe even, I have a relationship with him, but I don't feel like I'm really walking very closely to him, I feel distant from him. And the church in John's time was, was going through something similar in this moment. And so John writes this little notion, these, these verses in 18 through 24, and what he's doing is he is addressing specifically how the, the truth of God's word ought to inform our emotions and how it ought to inform our, our affections for Christ and for the God. So he, he's addressing issues of the heart. Now here's the deal. How many of us have said to our friends and to our neighbors from time to time, hey, listen, all you need to know in this moment is just, just listen to your heart, man. What does your heart say? 
Matthew Fanning says this to me all the time, Drew, just listen and follow your heart, right? Or we tell people things like, hey, let your conscience be your guide. But here's the problem with that sentiment. Jeremiah says in 17, he says this, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and it's incurable. Who can understand it? And so in one sense, you've got pop culture and even well-meaning Christians saying, hey, just follow your heart. Let your conscience be your guide. But then you've got over here in Jeremiah where Jeremiah's like, listen, I'm walking closely with God. I don't even know the motivations of my own heart. The heart is deceitful above all things. I need to be weary of it. How is it that I'm supposed to wrestle with this? Well, what John 3, 18 through 24 does for us in this larger idea that I want you to see in the text is it simply does this. It displays for us that our love for others will be the thing that reassures our heart that we belong to God. Our love for other people is the way that we bring assurance in our own hearts that we actually belong to God. To put this even in a more simplistic way in pursuing clarity, I would just simply say this, it's outward focus that yields an inward renewal in in my life. So the more outwardly minded that I am, the more renewal that's gonna come up on the inside of my heart and my affections and my desires for the things of God. And let me show you in the text how John does this, beginning in verse 18. Look with me where he says this. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Now, a couple of things are going on in these first two verses. And I want you to notice, I've said it over and over and over again, and I'm gonna keep saying it. I want you to notice and I want you to hear how John is speaking about the church. That when he addresses the church and he calls them little children, he's not being condescending to them. He's not speaking down to them, but rather he's recognizing them as a part of the family of God. And this term and this phrase used throughout this book is meant to illustrate the affections that John has for the local body, that he cares about the people that belong to that particular church. And that though he may speak to them in direct ways at times and and address certain issues that, that are there within them, he's not a critic of the church. And what the church does not need in in this day and age is it doesn't need more critics, but rather just needs more obedient followers of Jesus that are pursuing the goodness of God and the glory of Christ. And so he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but rather in deed and truth. Now, I want to make a distinction here in the text about what he's not doing in this moment. He's not saying that that it's more important that you have your deeds straight and that how you act is more important than what you're saying. And in fact, the way we translate this out of the Greek is is a little bit misleading down that path. And so if you were to read it in a certain way, you would say, well, listen, he seems to be valuing the idea that our actions are more important than our words. And we would say, listen, we're gonna back out and look at this text in light of other scriptures and say, listen, your, your, your actions are not more important than your words but rather they're just two sides of the same coin. How you live your life and serve people is equally as important as the truth that you hold dear to yourself. The idea fundamentally that I can preach Christ at people and not in turn serve them and love them is a misnomer in the text. We can read the book of James and it it illustrates this idea that we have to have actions that match our words. 
At the same time, we can be very loving people and caring for people and providing for people, all the while devoid of the gospel and talking about Christ and ultimately how he has died for our sins and he saves us from our sins. And so the idea here is that we are to love in, in both word and what we say, but also in our deeds and in our actions. And when we do this, what it says is that we shall know that we are of the truth and we are reassuring our hearts before him. What John is, is talking about here in this moment is he's talking about ultimately this posture of service that needs to exist in the life of the church. That if I am to be genuinely about loving other people, then it comes in this posture of, of service. And, and here's the thing about service that, that I don't like and maybe you don't like either is that service has this tendency that when I'm genuinely serving other people, it's going to move me to the ordinary and even the trivial places in life. In other words, that service is, is this thing that takes place in the margins of society, in the margins of churches, not in the spotlight, not at the pulpit, not before the lights. It's the thing that takes place behind the scenes. And we wrestle with this idea that we want to serve and, and be recognized for that service, and we should be. The Bible says to give honor where honor is due, and we should practice the, the gift of just being thankful and expressing gratitude to people. But day in and day out, when we're serving, what it's going to do is it's going to move us into this place of just ordinary movements and rhythms in our life where, where it'll go unrecognized, where no one will notice it. And it's easy, is it not, for us to serve people that look and act and talk and dress like us, that have the same means as we do that have the same likes as we do, that, that love the same sports that we do. Like Those are the easy ways to serve, though we shouldn't discount those things. And where push comes to shove, often in the Christian life and in really is a marker of, of healthy churches and thriving congregations, is that there is this willingness to serve people who are almost unservable, ultra-needy, emotionally draining, physically demanding, like these people can, can exist even amongst us. Your pastor can, can be one of those at times. Ask my wife, she'll tell you. And it's easy when we're serving people that are walking in maturity and pursuing Christ, but what I think the crux of the text here is that the call outwardly is to make sure that we are loving everyone within our body in love and in word or talk, but in deed and in truth as well. One of the joys that I get at being one of your elders here and the lead teaching pastor is that I get to hear stories of how God is using our church to serve one another and to serve those that are outside. And this past week, I got to have a conversation with Matt Getty, our college minister, and he was able to share with me um, what the Lord is doing in the hearts of some of our TCU students in particular who are recognizing this, this idea and this truth that God is sending them. He's called them here as sort of the hub, but then he has sent them out on that campus to go after people in the cafeterias and in the lunchrooms and in the fraternities and the sororities and all the places where they find that their lives are intertwining. And they're going and they're looking for people that don't know Christ and don't know the gospel. And they're looking for ways to, to come alongside them and to bring them into one of the home groups, into the community groups that meet on Tuesday night. Hey, come and be a part. Not offering anything, but just simply community and relationships. 
And what's happening is God's bringing and, and, and the Lord is blessing those efforts, the invitation. Listen, over 80% of people that come to a church or a small group come because of invitation. This is true not just at Travis, but this is true across all churches. And oftentimes our posture, uh, even here at Travis, and, and, it, and it wanes and it comes and goes, is that well, we're gonna have a small group or a Bible study on Sunday morning and people are, will just magically show up. And that does happen from time to time. And we're thankful for that. But the small groups and the Bible studies and the community groups that, that are pursuing health are those individuals that are extending invitations for people to come inside their circle and to be a part of what the Lord is doing. Not just simply lining up to a golf ball, closing your eyes, then hoping you hit it with your eyes closed. It doesn't work that way anymore. And so what John is, is addressing in the heart and in the life of the church is this posture of service that needs to exist in the life of the body. And the gospel that he proclaims here comes in both words and it comes in deeds. But if we look at verse 20 further, he says this, but whenever our heart, it condemns us. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. The traditional understanding of that word heart just simply means the seat of emotions, the place of desire. It's where the passion exists and it's where the passion is, is rooted. There was a, a famous television show, really it was one of the most uh, undervalued shows I think of its time about 10 or 15 years ago. And it was a TV show called Friday Night Lights. Anybody a fan of Friday Night Lights or seen it? Good people, all right. Now here's the deal for people that watched Friday Night Lights. If you watched Friday Night Lights, you knew and you know that it was not a show about high school football in Texas. It was way more than that. It was really a show about, about community and, and rallying around very difficult circumstances. Yes, there was football in it. And yes, you got to see them play football and hit, but you were rooting for the characters in the midst of that. And so one of the, the main characters in this television show was a guy named Coach Taylor. Like he was the main guy. And one of the ways that he tried to inspire his kids was this sort of uh, cliched statement where he, before they play a football game, sort of their motto was simply this, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Anthony, my man, he's got it. <laughs> Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. I love that. There's a gospel truth in the midst of that, of that little saying. Clear eyes, I've got to be able to think clearly, rightly about what it is that I'm supposed to do on the football field. I've got to be able to execute it. But here's the deal. You can know all the things in the world and have all the talent in the world. But if your heart is not full and your heart is not fully in it, then you are gonna get lit up on the field. You will get destroyed in the midst of battle if you don't show and display a full heart of emotion behind what you are doing. And the problem with Christianity is this, is that when we get one of those out of the order, that we can have all the knowledge in the world of the gospel and be puffed up with that knowledge, but it doesn't ultimately lead us to a place where we have a heart and a love and an affection for one another, then listen, my friend, your theology then at that point is absolutely, fundamentally, 100% wrong. 
That if it leads you to this place of, of I'm puffed up, I'm better than you, I know more than you, and it doesn't lead you to a posture of humility towards those that you can serve, your heart is, is not full. And then I would even argue that you're not seeing things clearly. But we live in this culture and in this day and age in which we rally around these, this idea of, of the heart and letting our heart lead us, letting our emotions drive things. And so let me say this to you, my friend. This is something that I have learned over time in relationship to this passage and, and elsewhere. I don't wanna invalidate your feelings in any way, and so I wanna say it this way. Your emotions are important. Just don't make them authoritative. There's a tendency even within biblical counseling and pastoral counseling is to minimize emotions. And I think that's wrong. I think it's errant. I think it's foolish because God has given us emotions. He's given us emotions so that we can feel and that we can have desire and we can be excited uh, as we root for a football team. We can root for our savior or our church or be excited about the, what the Lord is doing. And we don't have to minimize those things. But the problem comes when we allow those feelings and emotions to become authoritative. And you ask, well, authoritative over what? And the simple answer is this, authoritative over the truth found in this. That I need to recognize how it is I feel and why I feel, but I need to make sure that my feelings are being driven by the truth that I'm pulling out of here or that rather that's being revealed to me. Our emotions are important, but don't make them authoritative. I think the posture of David in Psalm 139 is helpful where he says, search me, O God, know my heart, test me, and know my concerns. Like David is a man who, who's acknowledging the condition of, of the desires of his heart and he's asking God, test them, make, make sure they're right. Make sure what I'm, I'm fired up about is the thing that I need to be fired up about. Make sure the thing that I'm mad about should be the thing that I'm mad about. Make sure the thing that I'm having a really hard time overlooking is, is the very thing that I should be overlooking or should not be overlooking. Like help me see my, my life through the lens that you see them through the gospel. But I wanna caution us here in the midst of, of making sure that we keep our emotions in check, the seat of those emotions, is that we need to be careful that we don't confuse conviction with condemnation and feeling condemned. We need to embrace as a people conviction. So the posture of the believer just really simply is this, is that we wanna be a people that's changed by this fundamentally, like we want to say, we want our lives to look like what is talked about in here. So if Jesus did it and said it, we, we wanna do it and say the same thing. We want to mirror our entire life after the entirety of this story that's found right here. And we need to make sure that when the Holy Spirit is convicting us of change, that we don't mistake it in a posture that we are living, feeling condemned by the very thing that God wants to refine in our life and in our hearts. And we see this with what I would just call like a more seeker-driven mentality in churches where, uh, where the goal oftentimes is just to come in and, and to be like, Carvin, man, I just want you to know that God loves you and he's for you. Yes, that's a truth. We want you to know that God wants the very best for you, to prosper you, not to harm you. Yes, that's a true statement that's found in scripture. And we just wanna have a cheerleading time for Jesus and rah-ha-ha ha and, and celebrate him. Yes, there's a time and there's a place for those things. But the gospel of Jesus is far more 
but just elevating him to this posture of being a mascot before his people. Like he's a savior who died to redeem the world and we're to worship him. He's infinite when we are finite. There's a distinction between him being God and us being man. He dwelt with us and came and lived amongst us. But we need to make sure that as he says to change, that we abide in that change and we walk forward in that change. For he goes on and he says in verse 21, he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So this word confidence in the Greek there, it just simply means a freedom of speech before our Father. So um, I have five kids, if you didn't know that. It's possible. I love my five kids. They're all at different stages in life. And at one point, they all sort of did some similar behavior that Lucy, my little two-year-old, does on a regular basis. So when I come home from work and I walk in, the thing that Lucy does that none of the other kids do, Duke does a little bit. He's my four-year-old. They, they, they both still do the same thing. When I walk in the door, Lucy will look at me. She'll go, Dad! And she'll take off running right at me. And she'll grab my, my right leg or my left leg, whichever is, is the closest to her, and then she just like holds on to it, okay? Now, as my kids get older, my oldest is a 14-year-old, and he gets progressively the, the greeting that I get when I get home. So I've got Lucy that's like, Dad, and there's freedom, and she's coming up to me. And then and the Duke's like, Dad, Dad. He may not run up to me, but he's excited. And then you got a hat, he's like, we're so glad Dad's home. But as it gets older, you're like, yo, Dad's home. And then it's like, What's up, Dad? Right? Like the freedom's just kind of like gone and we're in the, that age, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Like I'm not, I'm not mad about that, okay? I'm not gonna put my kids in counseling for that. But they all responded like Lucy did when they were two years old. And, and I, I love it and I'm gonna miss it as they get older. But what Lucy's response is to me when I come home, like this is the, the confidence that he's talking about here. If our heart does not condemn us, we have this freedom, this frankness, like we can approach God with this sense of joy and happiness that even in the midst of hard and difficult times, that our Father wants us to come up with this confidence that like we're home, I'm with you. And to be excited, and this is the posture of the believer that John's trying to convey. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us and we don't feel condemned, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what he pleases. I wanna say this just real quickly in passing in verse 22, because if we miss this, we, we can get into a, a really strange relationship with the Lord if we miss this. If you notice in the beginning of verse 22, he says, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Now, if you just stopped right there, which I have many brothers and sisters in Christ that just stop right there. I've prayed with many brothers and sisters in Christ right there who stop and they'll say, Lord, you tell us whatever we ask in you and through you, we will receive. And I'm like, man, that, that's a pretty cool deal. And they forget the latter half of, of the verse where he says this, we receive these things, why? Because we're walking in obedience to his commands and we're doing and living a life that pleases him. So, so what I've got here is as I'm asking, I'm asking that my life in this moment, not that I would receive all the goodies from God, but rather what he's saying here is that as I pursue to know Christ, my life is going to be conformed after Christ. 
that he's not my genie that I'm, I'm pulling out these, these different treasures or requests. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Because the things that we ask are in accordance with his commands and the things that we're asking are things that already please him. That's how we receive the benefit of what it is that he's telling us to ask. But ultimately what John is saying to the church this morning is, is simply this, loving others as we have been loved by Jesus, it assures us that we are in the truth. Notice verse 23 where he, where he ends in these last two verses. He says, listen, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Christ, and we love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commands abides in him, God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us the spirit whom he has given us. I want you to go back to verse 23 and I want you to look very carefully where he says this, and this commandment, we believe in the name of his son and the commandment is to believe in Jesus and to love one another. And so here's, here's sort of the application of this text this morning. So about Thursday, I'm working through all this and I get to the end, I'm like, okay, what, what, does, what does a tangible way, what does loving one another look like in the context of Travis? And how are we to, to practice this loving posture towards one another? And I hope by now, you're, you're, frankly, I hope you're getting sick and tired of me saying this because I'm gonna say this for the next 10, 20, and 30 years. And it's to the point where I, I'm looking for just eye rolls, like, oh, there he goes again, right? Like I'm looking for that because then I know that we're getting this. In the context of loving one another, the best way that I know to help you show that you are loving and caring for one another, we say it in a little bit different way. And the way we say it is just simply this, we love one another in our circle. The circle more than the row. We love that you're here in corporate worship. I'm so glad this room is full. I love to see all these faces. I'm so thankful. This, this time is meaningful. Uh, this time is important for us to not forsake the gathering, as he says in Hebrews. But here's the deal. Ultimately, if this is where we stay, we are missing out on, on one, God's best for us, really walking in obedience. But we are, looking, we are missing out on the broader context of the body and who this body is in our circle. The most important groups at our church, listen to me, and this is gonna be maybe controversial to some of you, and I don't care, I'm gonna say it. It is not our personnel committee, our missions committee, those, those things are important. Our finance committee, those things are important. All the other committees that we have, hadn't had, will have, don't have, all of those things are great. But listen to me, the most important circle that we have in our church, because it is the avenue by which we are making disciples and seeking to grow disciples it's the circle. It's the Sunday morning Bible study and the teacher that comes along and opens up the word of God. And then there's this promotion of fellowship and one anothering and talking back and forth and meeting outside of the classroom and loving on each other. It's the community group that's gathering on Tuesdays and, and Fridays and, and Thursdays and Wednesdays and all the nights of the week. Like that's the most important thing. And so here's the deal. The way that we demonstrate our love for one another is that we leverage our abilities for other people's needs in in the circle, in the circle. Yes, we leverage our, our, our things for people outside of this church. And yes, we demonstrate our love for one another to people outside of the church. But what he's talking about in this moment is he is talking about the love that the church has for the church. And this is important and this is foundational. 
to a healthy church moving forward. It's our circle and what it is that we're doing. We leverage our, our ties and our offerings, our time and our resources. We leverage our sweat and our tears, all of those things for the people that exist in our circle. But the second way that we love people is that we seek to bridge the gap to get those far from God. We seek to bridge the gap. I... Uh, I love our church. I love this building that we're in. I love that it's old and looks ancient. I love the high ceilings. I love the platform. There's not another place like this anywhere. And we need to care for this room and this building and our facilities. And we need to, we need to, to do some things to help enhance it and to grow it. I, I love it. Absolutely love it 100%. But here's the deal. As beautiful as this room is and as wonderful as this room is, the beauty of this church is not in the architecture, but rather it is in the body. It is in the people. It's not the building that makes up the church. This is just the place that we gather to sort of reconnect. It's the people, being the people that God has called the people to be, specifically in the context of the circle. And here's the deal. Our goal is not to amaze our community by what we build in here, but in how we live out there more so. If you didn't know this, I think I've said this before, but the days, although it's still happening in some pockets, the days of, of come and see in, in church life are they're kind of over for the most part. What I mean is the idea that I can build a building and people will come, it's, it's done, it's over. I think more so even in Fort Worth, having been out of Fort Worth and come back in, like, like for the most part, still happening in certain spots. But even when churches were advocating, hey, come and see, there, there's a part of that, that that's true biblically, but, but here's where the real people that are on mission, the real people that are on mission get that the gospel is less about come and see and it's rather more about go and tell. And this is a shift that we, we are gonna have to make long-term, that our trajectory long-term is gonna have to be to go and tell. Last week after church, I got a couple of texts and emails, I'll end here, from some people like, oh my gosh, did you hear about Kobe? I was like, no, what? I get on Twitter and I start looking, I'm like, oh, Kobe Bryant, he passed away, he died. And be truthful, I, I'm not a millennial, I'm not a Gen Xer, I'm a Zennial, and so when, when I grew up, like MJ was the man, like he was the guy. And so when I was hearing all the Kobe stuff, I was like, I don't, I don't get it. No offense to the Kobe people. But it was sort of a miss on me. And then I was talking with somebody and they said, well, listen, you, if, if MJ died, Michael, you know who that is, Michael Jordan, right? I'm not dating myself, okay? Just making sure, right? Um, if Michael Jordan died at 41 in the way that Kobe did, it would be the same reaction for, for your generation and older. I said, okay, that makes, that makes complete sense. And so it sent me down this road last week where I was like, I still haven't figured out what the big deal is with Kobe. And in the midst of all this talk about legacy, on the court, off the court, amazing player on the court, just did some incredible things that, that maybe will never be done again. I, I don't know. And he's arguably one of the top three basketball players of, of all time in, in most conversations with most sports writers. But one of the things that I found significant about 
his life was not so much the things that he achieved on the court, which were utterly amazing, but what he's tried to dedicate his life to do outside of basketball and post-basketball. He's a pretty incredible philanthropist. Pretty incredible uh, 41-year-old man who has a heart for his community and heart for inner city and and has has given away millions and millions of of dollars to to youth in, in various circumstances and in various ways. Incredible. And I know he's, he's known more for what he did on the but he, he really had set his life up to where he, was, he had just begun to live his life post-basketball and to see that taken away so tragically, what I think just happened in our culture and why our culture just blew a gasket over it in some ways was, yes, he was this prolific star, but, but in those moments, you, you hear those old cliched statements, only the good die young, right? I mean, 41 years old with his daughter, what a, what a terrible thing. I couldn't help but go here. Maybe it's because I'm a pastor. I don't know. But, but I kept going, Drew, what? That could be you in a moment. Pastor, what, what is it that you're living for? How are you investing? How are you pursuing? How are you going after those that are far from God or that those need help or that those that need to see and to hear and to feel and to touch the love of Jesus? When John ends in verse 23, he's one of my favorite verses in this passage. He says that we believe in the name of his son. I, I, I think that may be the best way to simplify the gospel. And I, I would just say it may be a little bit different in four words and we'll end here. I think the gospel can be summed up in four words, just simply this, Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. He died, he lived the life I was supposed to live, he died the death I was condemned condemned to die, and he didn't just merely die for me, he died instead of me. Like That's a remarkable truth to hold on to this morning. And if you're here today and and you don't know Christ, you're far from God, we want, our desire is that you would know him. That you would just simply be able to say in your own way, "I, I believe Jesus died in my place and all those who call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. But church family, maybe you know Jesus and you've been walking with him for a long time and so my challenge to you as we end this morning is just simply this. How will you reassure your own heart that you know God based on how you love somebody this week? Like that's your application. To bring assurance to your own heart that you are in the faith, following God and know God intimately based upon how you love someone, either outside this church or in your circle. We're gonna end in a time of prayer and response. But as we do that, we wanna love a group of people this morning that are worthy of our love and worthy of our affection. We wanna be a church that launches groups out into this city to go get people who are far from God. It's a really simple vision and mission. And so I'm I'm gonna ask Matthew Fanny to come up here first. Matthew, come on up. Some of you know Matthew. Um, I've had the privilege to know Matthew for a long time. Uh, I was actually a student minister. And then uh, he got saved somewhere in there. He lost his salvation and went to Texas A&M. He graduated, got it back. And so we're delighted that he knows the Lord. Come up here, Matthew. So 
so when we were like coming back to Travis and um, a lot of you were a big part of that and, and knowing that I knew Matthew and knew his mom and dad and had a close relationship before. And when Matthew told me one day when I just got here, he said, hey, I'm coming back to Travis. Like, this is my home church. Like, I'm not going somewhere else. Like, I'm coming. Like, what, where do I go? Where do I fit? I was like, I don't know. I'm the new guy. I have no idea what's going on here. But last week I made a statement to you and I'm gonna say it again and I'll say it again in the future. We come to church not to find community, but to create community. And we find it in the process of seeking to create it. So Matthew tells me about a month ago, he says, listen, I'm here, this is my home church. Um, I love Sunday school. I love what we're doing in Bible study, but I wanna provide something for young adults my age to meet in homes. I said, well, that's great, Matthew, because I've, I've been praying. We're gonna launch six new community groups this year in the next 12 months. We want six of them out into our city and you're the first. Congratulations. No pressure for failure. And so he's like, got it, I'll do it. You tell me what I need to do. And so beginning this Tuesday, we're calling them young adults, the fanning, second fanning group, those that just graduated out of college, somewhere around there, 20s, somewhere around there. Like we're launching them into the city. And here's what we're not doing. We're not trying to steal people from other classes. So if you're a part of a class and faithfully attending, this isn't for you, don't, don't come. Stay where you are. Unless you're mad at your teacher and we need to have a conversation, then we can do that, okay? We're not trying to snipe people from classes. That is not what we're doing here. What we are doing is we are trying to create space for people that have not yet come to Travis. And we wanna be a church that launches people out into our city to do this. They love each other, like John talks about in the text. They're gonna care for one another and that lost people are gonna see the care and the nurture that takes place in that group. And this is how the gospel goes forth in our church. This is our model of evangelism. Some of you seminary students who wanna talk to me about our evangelistic program, like this is it. This is it. And this is where we're headed. So here's what we're gonna do. Um, if, you're, if you're committed to going to Matthew's group on Tuesday, stand up real quick. I know there's a couple of you guys that are here. Actually, y'all come on down here with Matthew. Let's do this. That's a decent rate of return for the first night, right? So here's the deal, friends. Y'all look at me real quick. We... We wanna launch you guys and commission you guys this morning. We believe in what you're doing. We believe there's a place for that in our city, but you, you will have no more effectiveness with the gospel based on how committed you are to loving one another and caring for one another. And the better you do that and the more you commit to one another, the better your evangelistic witness to those that are far from God is gonna be. So the more faithful you are, the more regular you are, the more you care and show concern, the more palatable your witness of evangelism is gonna be to the young 20s that are in our city. There's a bunch of them. There's a lot. And I need about four or five more groups to start down this path and down this way. So we want you to know as young adults that we love you. We want you to know that we're for you. And we want you to know as a church that we're behind this and we support this and we wanna do everything that we can to see you guys be successful. But most importantly, as your pastor, one of your pastors, we want you to care for one another and to put it on display so that when somebody that doesn't know Jesus sees what y'all are doing, they're like, I wanna be a part of that. And that's how we bring in and that's how we draw. So church, here's how we're gonna end. We're gonna pray for these guys and we're gonna sing some songs, okay? We want the Lord's favor on this group of young adults. And between
between you and me, don't tell anybody else, we want five more of these groups to happen in the next 12 months, okay? Haley and I, my Haley and I, we're starting one in, in about May. We're gonna get the ball rolling with the second or third one. And we need some more. So let's stand, let's respond. Some of you come down and, and gather around these young adults. If you have a heart for young adults and families, come on down here, gather around this group, put your hands on them, begin to pray for them, ask for God's blessing and favor, that God would use them, shape his kingdom, begin to pray, and let's ask for God's favor over these in our service and our time as we end our time with the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you in Jesus' name that you are good and that you are calling out people within this body. And we send them out, God, with, with courage, with favor. And we ask, God, that you would move Pray, God, that you would reach people that are far from you because of this group of committed young adults, that our church would do everything that we can to provide for them, to nurture them, to help share our homes and our resources with them because we want to be for them and we wanna see them succeed. So help us, God, be a generous people. Help us be a hospitable people. Lord, and help us reach people for your kingdom and your namesake. Father, we love you and we say thank you for the good things that you are doing and have done. And for we pray in the name of Christ and God's people said,